The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Recently, we've had a chance to speak with the directors of several of Netflix's Emmy-nominated documentaries. We talked to Andrew Rossi about the Andy Warhol Diaries, Cootie Simmons and Chike Oza told us about the making of Genius, a Kanye trilogy, and most recently, Felicity Morris gave us the backstory to the Tinder swindler. Check out these conversations in our feed and watch these documentaries, now available on Netflix. Controlling Britney Spears is a New York Times investigation that revealed the most detailed portrait yet of how Britney Spears' 13-year-long conservatorship operated behind the pristine public image that her team presented. And we featured interviews with several key insiders, including a whistleblower who exposed how Britney's dad and her security team ran a spying operation that secretly recorded her in her bedroom and spied on her texts with her attorney. It's a follow-up to our film Framing Britney Spears, which was this cultural phenomenon where people around the world were contending with how the media and regular people treated Britney Spears throughout her life. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. Today, we're talking to Samantha Stark, director of Controlling Britney Spears, and Liz Day, supervising producer of the film. The film has been nominated for a 2022 Emmy for Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Special. It's part of the New York Times Presents series that's available for streaming now on Hulu. The film premiered in September 2021, and in the podcast, we also discuss their first New York Times Presents documentary, Framing Britney Spears, which premiered back in February 2021. Samantha Stark is an Emmy Award winner and Peabody Award finalist. She's a director and producer on the New York Times Presents documentary series from FX and Hulu. She joined the New York Times as a staff video journalist back in 2012. Liz Day is a reporter and supervising producer for the New York Times Presents. Previously, she worked at Last Week Tonight with John Oliver and at the investigative reporting nonprofit ProPublica. So this is really kind of the second part of a two-part series that really broke open the Britney Spears story. What struck you about the two films, Mike, and also just in talking to the two today? I watched both these films back to back. The first one really gives you kind of a history of Britney Spears from small town Louisiana girl to the Mickey Mouse Club and then falling out of that and then clawing her way back through doing a tour of shopping malls and then an accelerant to superstardom. It's kind of the story you may know. And then what happens afterwards? And I think even that film, though, is good at calling into questions that canned history we have of her supposed mental breakdown. But the second one, I think, to me, was like a revelation because some of the same materials that appeared in the first film appear again, but they're in this different light. So when we see Brittany telling her dad she's not going to get off the phone, it doesn't seem just like adolescent peak. She's in her 20s, by the way. In the second film, it's clear it is a fight for control. It is a push against the security apparatus that's shackling her down. So I really found after having watched the first film, the second film felt like it just opened this door into this conservatorship, which really has become a prison for her. And when the first film came out, it really caused quite a stir. And I think one of the effects of that is that the people who worked for Brittany, who were a part of her team, came out 
as you say in our conversation, the wall came down and they spoke NDAs or no NDAs. They spoke with these two filmmakers. And that's really when we started to get so much more of the behind the scenes explanation of what was going on to Brittany. And a lot of it is just really horrifying in terms of the control and the invasion of privacy, the surveillance she was under. It just goes on and on. I also thought it was interesting in our conversation that these two women filmmakers, they had to convince their editors at the New York Times to go along with this story. And it wasn't such an easy sell at the beginning, but they worked at it. They developed their contacts. They got court transcripts and they were finally eventually able to convince their editors to make this series. For me, one thing that's clear watching the film and then talking to the two filmmakers is whatever initial reluctance you might come to this as a viewer about, you know, oh, it's a film about Britney Spears and why should I care? There are a whole lot of reasons to care. Basically, this conservatorship system is broken. I think that's a very clear outcome from watching these two documentaries. And also the specter of mental illness is a stigma that attaches itself to people. It's very hard to get from out under it. I think that probably when you heard that she was still under conservatorship, she's probably like, oh, well, you know, she was smashing up that car. She shaved her head. That was 14, 15 years ago. <laughs> that is not evidence that she should be under lock and key today. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and do tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Twitter at TopDocsPod. And now our conversation with filmmaker Samantha Stark and Liz Day about controlling Britney Spears. Samantha Stark and Liz Day, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. Thanks. Liz, can you tell us why do you make documentaries? I make documentaries because I hate to write. Just kidding. I actually love writing for TV, but I make documentaries because I am naturally a journalist. I'm curious about the world. I love learning new things and I love investigating money and power and stories in the public interest. And then I'm particularly interested in TV and film and documentaries because I think the reach is just so much more powerful. You know, I have normal people like my sister or my neighbor see my work as compared when you're writing in print. And I think it's more powerful and it changes hearts and minds in a way that print rarely does. And then lastly, I think the creative challenges in making documentaries are a lot more exciting. You know, when you have a piece of archival tape and you're really noodling around how to edit it and what parts of it to show and how to cut it into a piece, I think that's a lot more exciting than necessarily just changing the words in a sentence. How about you, Samantha? Why do you make documentaries? I used to be a bartender in my early 20s, and I noticed that people would look at me and want to be my friend or want to talk to me. And it wasn't just because I was serving them booze. It would be afterwards or outside if they'd recognize me in the neighborhood. I think it, a reason is because we rarely give each other permission to look at people in our society. There's very rare occasions where it's not rude to, to look at someone for long periods of time. And the way that a bar works when you're behind the bar, it's not weird to look at the person. And 
I think that the same thing happens in documentary where we give people permission to look at other people and it makes the viewer kinder as they walk away from that. My whole goal in life is to try to make the world a little kinder. That is a good goal. And I think you can definitely see that at work in this documentary. So while we'll be speaking mainly about your Emmy-nominated Controlling Britney Spears, there are really two sort of, in my mind, interlocking documentaries of interest here, both part of a New York Times series. The first is Framing Britney Spears from February of 2021, and then Controlling Britney Spears in September of the same year. And while I think Controlling definitely stands on its own, I think it will make sense to speak about them a little bit in terms of their... I might even call it interactions between the two, revelations in some sense in the second one. But before we do that, let's really define what a conservatorship is. And this is a legal status that Britney Spears was placed under in 2008 and from which she really was only freed this year. Could you explain what a conservatorship is and who usually is placed under conservatorship? For people who are not familiar with conservatorships, there are these unique legal arrangements in which a court gives powers over someone else to someone called a conservator. So they're designed for very, very vulnerable people who have been deemed unable to provide basic needs for themselves, like food, clothing, and shelter. And generally, most conservatorships are for the very elderly people who have dementia and are terminally ill and will never get better. Typically, how long do they last? Typically, they last forever until the person dies, because usually people under a conservatorship are elderly and in their last stages of life. So they're designed to protect you in that very vulnerable stage. So it's very rare for someone to get out of a conservatorship like Brittany did. Your definition, it's a great definition. I think it's very accurate. And by the way, my wife's grandmother was under conservatorship and I think very reasonably. It was very humane and it made a lot of sense. And basically it was spending what was left of her estate, as it were, as she you know, was moving towards death. So it was fine. It was a fine thing for someone like that in Spears. Someone might say, well, you know, I heard stuff. I think she's crazy. I saw this cover shaving her head. I saw her attacking paparazzi. I heard she was under a 5150. And so maybe this was reasonable. But I think framing Britney Spears really does a pretty good job of making us re-see some of those evidences of her supposed insanity. Yes, I mean, one of the reasons that it's called framing Britney Spears is we saw back then Britney in these frames, like the frame of a magazine cover, and she's wielding an umbrella and it looks like she's about to attack a paparazzo. When you hear the story behind it, we interviewed the person who she hit his car with the umbrella and he had video, which is really different from photos. So you could see what was happening. He was following her around late at night. She was trying to go see her kids, trying to ask her questions about how upset she is. And she it appears from the video finally cracks and goes over and she doesn't hit him. She hits his car and runs away. And when you look in the video, it's very, very short. But in the tabloid photos, you know, she's burying her teeth. And if they had chosen a different frame, it might have looked different. And I think when you edit her this in order, the way that we all treated her and humiliated her, it gives you a better picture of what was leading up to the conservatorship. 
And even if we grant that, you know, she may have been suffering some form of depression, maybe postpartum depression in 2008, <laughs> that was 14 years ago. And in terms of her work, her career, everything, does she really look like somebody who is unable to feed herself, clothe herself, is open to manipulation? I mean, to your knowledge, has there ever been anyone under conservatorship who is earning tens of millions of dollars a year? No, not actively performing. And that was something that we asked a lot of experts because obviously mental health is very complicated. We come in with an open mind and are seeking guidance and expertise from different experts. And so when we would ask them, obviously we don't know what we don't know, but what do you make of this situation? Resoundingly, they would say that conservatorships are for people are very, very extreme. They're supposed to be a last resort after you try to help someone in various other ways that aren't so severe that they take away all of their civil rights. And Brittany's situation presented such a unique paradox that these experts would point out that either she is so vulnerable that she needs this intense level of protection, or she's able to actively perform and make millions of dollars, including millions of dollars for various conservators and other people working for her. And those two things, it just really boggled their mind that, you know, how can those two things be true at the same time? And I know you're a journalist, so I'll say it. it's outrageous. It makes no sense. You're both journalists. You have done this series with and for the New York Times. How did you come to the story originally? Because you really broke this story, I believe. So tell us how you first came upon it and really dug deep into it. I had pitched this idea on like my first day at the New York Times when I joined back in 2018 and kind of got lost in the shuffle at the time. But I had been attracted to it after watching other doc series like OJ Made in America. And I thought, wow, you could really tell a similar story about Britney Spears, whereas you tell her story, but you're examining such bigger issues like money and power and gender and the justice system and fame and a lot of really interesting material to explore. The idea just went nowhere. But then during the pandemic, we were revisiting ideas. And it just so happened that at that same time, Britney's case was really starting to move publicly in a way that hadn't happened in the prior 12 years. Her lawyer started to, or her then lawyer started to ask the court to remove her father as her conservator. And also to start unsealing records and to say, Brittany welcomes the informed support of her fans and, you know, wants people to pay attention to her case. I think when we started researching and talking to people, we had a spreadsheet of over a thousand names where we were trying to find people to talk about Britney Spears and the conservatorship. And it was so hard to get people to talk because there was this cone of silence around what was going on with her. And we were told by a lot of people that you'll never crack the conservatorship. She's totally fine in it. It saved her life. And the narrative they were presenting was that she wanted it. It was considered a voluntary conservatorship, which is misleading because you can't get out of it if you just say, I'm not volunteering anymore. When we were looking at all the media coverage of her throughout her life, there's a lot of vitriol and hatred and humiliation and shame geared toward her. And so I felt like I knew why people hated Britney Spears, but I wanted to know why people loved her. So I started talking to the fans who had been conspiracy theorists like 
thinking Brittany was communicating through her Instagram and was unhappy and people would smirk and laugh at them. They were really worried about talking to me. But after we started talking to them, we realized that, you know, at points they were pointing out something really worth looking into about the conservatorship system. I remember when we figured out from talking to some of them, they pointed out that Brittany pays for her own lawyer who she didn't get to choose, who was assigned for her, and also her conservator's lawyers, her father's lawyers. And so the more they argued against each other, the more money they all made. Also that her business manager was making money off of her. And the more she worked, the more money all of these people were making. And is that in Britney's best interest or in Britney the brand's best interest? And so once we started looking into all those things, we realized why hasn't this been covered more? Media covers Britney Spears so much. And I think that kind of set us off in a direction we weren't totally expecting at the beginning. So one of the things that's different, perhaps for you two, than for independent filmmakers is you still need to convince your editors that this story is worth pursuing and putting resources behind. At what point did you get that buy-in from your editors? What convinced them, okay, we want to go ahead with this? We should give a shout out to Mary Robertson, who was the showrunner and executive producer of the show, and Jason Stallman as well, our editor at the Times, who were into the idea and were the ones who encouraged us to pursue it. An interesting thing about this story is that we were initially advised that the conservatorship was a nut that could never be cracked. A lot of journalists had looked into it and they had just been stonewalled and had been told that Brittany wanted this and they had not been able to disprove that. So we entered into the project knowing that may be a real possibility. We made sure to focus a lot on how she got there and do an archival look at Britney's rise from small town in Louisiana to the biggest superstar on the planet. And then also looking at the way, as Sam noted, the culture and the press and the public treated her at that time and what can be learned from that. I think also craft-wise, as this is a podcast talking about documentaries, it was toward the beginning of the pandemic, and we were looking for projects that could use a lot of archival footage and could have individual sit-down interviews because it was really hard to film Verite then. So I think that kind of pushed it over the edge, actually, that we could make it remotely following COVID protocols. It was very hard to do interviews with a mask on because I had to keep my mask on during it. And so you have to make your eyes look so big and nod your head because they can't see your facial expression. So I was like a bobblehead, nodding my head, opening my eyes, closing my eyes. But it was like a magic twist of the pandemic. I think the experience of watching these back to back as I did is the first one feels very much that way, which is Britney's trapped. It's behind this wall. We can't penetrate that wall. And the second one's like a wall is falling. There's a Rashomon kind of quality to it where we're hearing things we didn't hear. And one of the most powerful sorts of versions of this is Felicia Collada, who we see in the first documentary. There's a cute moment where you do the clapboard and she's just delighted with it. And she tells us so much more in the second documentary. I assume she's breaking her NDA and the wall is coming down. Is that what I'm seeing? 
Absolutely. Yeah. She was really scared during the first documentary. She's such a lovely human and I had so much fun with her in her hometown, but she was nervous. I think she said the word conservatorship in the first documentary and she was like, I don't know if anyone said this word as of the point she was doing the interview. So she was scared. But then actually in June of 2021, also a magic twist of the conservatorship, Brittany spoke in court and said things like, I feel like I'm being trafficked. I was put in a mental health facility against my will. She said she felt like she was forced to take lithium against her will. And because of the pandemic, they were trying to make it so people didn't come into the courtroom. Usually it would just be journalists taking notes and then trying to convey what she said. But you could call in and hear the audio of what she was saying. And, you know, people spread it all throughout the Internet. And we were outside with Free Britney folks while they were listening to it on their cell phones. Once that happened, Felicia, as well as the other people in her documentary, wanted to be more open because they said now that Britney has spoken publicly, we have some evidence that backs up some of what she's saying. And we know that she wants people to know because she said that and we heard it. And so Felicia was able to be much more open. You said it breaks the wall. And it's interesting because the first documentary, we had these flat walls of flowers and leaves behind the people. And that was on purpose because it wanted to be like, is this real? Is this not real? And at certain important points in the film, we would back up and show you that it was just a flat set. And then in the second documentary, we pulled the flat walls aside and we had the roses from the first documentary kind of scattered in the background. And that was totally on purpose to show that we were breaking that wall. I was going to ask about that, especially the mysterious finish to the first one where Brittany's in the tub and she says, it looks like a rose. And then she crumples it up. It's not a rose. But I thought that was sort of a echo of the flowers we saw throughout the piece. Absolutely. And the reason we did that is because I had been obsessed with looking at her Instagram, of course, because that's what everyone talked about. And that was the only way you could really see Brittany Spears. She rarely did interviews and they were very controlled by her little circle around her. and. There's just roses everywhere in her Instagram, roses, 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 flowers. And so I wanted it to feel like we were living in her Instagram. And the second one, actually, we made these like stately homes in the back of her because she had started putting her home more in her Instagram and doing these like twirling dances in her living room, which was very marble and tall curtains and everything. And so the sets were like that on purpose. In the second film, there's at least one reference to the first film and probably more amongst some of the activists. But Alex, the young assistant to Idan Yemeni, who's the head of Black Buck Security, who's long provided security for Britney and we feel probably against Britney later on, he makes reference like, oh, Idan was so happy when he saw that because you guys didn't know anything about us and you didn't know what was happening. Could you talk a little bit about the effect the film had as Sam said, when we first started on the first film, we had a spreadsheet of people. We called over a thousand people and nobody wanted to talk. And we powered through that and were able to convince some people to talk off the record or on background and convinced a few more people to appear on camera and on the record. But I think after the first film premiered and really resonated, 
it really opened doors for a lot more people and a lot more people who knew things and were insiders and had firsthand knowledge and experience with things to come forward and to trust us, which was really incredible. So Sam and I started to build relationships with people, learn more information, see sealed records we had never seen before. And yeah, have whistleblowers like Alex come forward and say, I want to tell you what was actually going on and what I saw and here is evidence of it. Lastly, you mentioned him particularly saying how Adam was happy he wasn't mentioned in the first one. And we heard that from people after the first doc came out. They said, you barely mentioned TriStar and her business management and Lou Taylor, or you barely mentioned this person or that person. And that was mostly because no one would talk to us on camera about any of those things. But after the first doc really changed the conversation around Britney and brought more people forward, we were able to change that in the second documentary and really show people the other players who are involved in the conservatorship beyond just Jamie, who is the face of it. I have a question about these NDAs. A lot of these people on camera say, you know, I have this NDA, but I, I'm going to talk to you anyway. In what ways are these people vulnerable when they decide, okay, I'm going to talk to these filmmakers? That's a great question and something I can't stress enough, which is how scary this was for the insiders to come forward and break these very scary NDAs and how scared they were of being sued. And rightfully so, were scared of being sued. Jamie sued a lot of people during the conservatorship using Britney's money to hire lawyers and sue people to be quiet. And as journalists, that's a really tricky thing to navigate because you're ethically not allowed to encourage someone to break an NDA technically, and you're not able to give them legal advice either. So you really have to navigate that carefully where you can argue the public interest in them coming forward and sharing the information they know. All the while, you have to be realistic of the legal threat that that poses to them and us too. In the New York Times Code of Ethics, we are not allowed to pay anybody for interviews, which I actually think is really valuable in this case. A reason that we don't pay for people to do interviews is it might manipulate them to go on the record when they don't want to. And also they might tell us what we want to hear because they want to get paid more for more juicy information. And so the people who came forward really wanted to do it because they wanted to correct the record. That was a term we used a lot in our emails that we sent out to people. And the people in the second film came forward. They reached out to us because they had interest in talking to us because it was very important for them to come forward with the truth. But it was really scary. They risked their jobs. The industry is very small. And so one of the things that both of our main people featured in the film, Tish Yates and Alex Vlasov said was, this might make it so my career is over. Her business management, her security team have a lot of power in the industry and they could make it so I can't get another job. And they wanted to do it anyway. And we were very clear with them on what the consequences could be. And I think Liz and I both didn't want anyone to do anything they weren't 100% comfortable with. You can never predict what will actually happen. Jamie is Jamie Spears, who's Brittany's father, who the court had awarded conservatorship over both her personally and her finances. And that changes at some point. And also the court was paying him a salary and he also was receiving some portion of the revenues of the various deals she did. And it should be pointed out, she was doing 
these massive tours and these TV shows and even a residency in Vegas. Again, kind of an atypical thing for somebody who cannot supposedly feed themselves. Like less than a month after she initially gets under the conservatorship, she is guest starring on broadcast TV on How I Met Your Mother. And then by the end of that year, she has recorded an album and is preparing to go on this massive blockbuster tour called the Circus Tour. She goes on to release more albums. As you note, she then does a Vegas deal, which is very rigorous. She's appearing multiple times a week and again, bringing in a massive amount of money for the various people around her. Who have a lot of control over her. You know, we say, oh, he received a portion of the revenue. Also, TriStar, who we mentioned, her business manager did. The more she worked, the more work the security company had. The longer this went, the more money the lawyers received. And right before, actually, he ended up stepping down the co-conservator of her estate, meaning the person who decided what to do with her money, asked for a raise so that he was making almost half a million dollars a year. And his justification for that was that it was a hybrid business model. The conservatorship, which took all of her basic rights away, who she interacted with, where she lived. We believe her medical rights at certain points and what to do with her money was considered a hybrid business model. And the judge awarded him that raise. It's very confusing, I think, how the court system works. Normally, conservatorships are over an estate that is being spent out in support of the person in their last years of life, not a growing estate or a productive person. I know you guys can't say this. I can say this is an outrage. We don't even know how many people are in conservatorships because there's not a place where there's a count, you know, across the country. We believe there could be up to like a million people in conservatorships. And it's not only Brittany, we're shining a spotlight on the system in general, because there's a lot of places where we see room for possible abuse for conflict of interest, very much conflict of interest. A lot of people have told us that lawyers on both sides drain the estate until basically it's gone because of arguing back and forth and giving a person that much power over someone that often has a lot of money. There's a lot of room for gray areas and possible abuse in that. So we hope that our reporting shines a spotlight on that as well. It certainly got me to thinking that I hope the New York Times and other legacy media companies that have the resources will investigate other conservatorships. We last year were all consumed by Britney's case because we had started off with the first doc and then we did the second doc about the potentially illegal surveillance of Britney and other abuses. And then we finished up the year trying to follow the money to the best that we could, focusing on her business manager, TriStar. And so we were all consumed 24-7 with the specifics of Britney's case. And we're not able to really dive into other interesting conservatorships. I think that's something that hopefully, it, it looks like other journalists have been doing that. I have not been able to do that, though, personally. So one of the stunning revelations of the second film, Controlling Britney Spears, is the incredible abuse of electronic surveillance equipment, recording equipment, by Britney's security team, Idan Yemeni, who runs this company called Black Box Security, seems to be running amok, basically. He's putting recording devices inside Britney's bedroom. 
they have devised a way of tracking everything on a an iPad so they can see every text she's sending, basically everything that she's communicating to other people, I guess, aside from the actual content of phone calls. But the dam breaks when Adon's assistant, Alex, comes forward and talks to you and reveals these things and, in fact, says, I kept a copy of those recordings that Adon made in her bedroom. Can you talk a bit about how this is just a whole nother level of intrusion in Brittany's life and if there have been any consequences for it? Brittany's lawyer, Matthew Rosengart, in his statement for the documentary said these allegations represent like a shocking violation of Brittany's civil liberties, which I think was well put. We were expecting them. I mean, when Alex came to us with this material, we obviously took corroboration and substantiation incredibly serious and had meetings with Dean Bickey, the head of the New York Times, about how to vet this, because these are really shocking, potentially criminal allegations. So we dove right into that and meticulously corroborated these allegations. You listen to the tapes, talk to the people on the other side of these text messages to verify that they were true and they had never given anyone permission to intercept these text messages in real time. It was a real wild card when we had to go to Jamie and Black Box with these allegations and say, do you dispute them? Or what is your comment? I think it was actually when we were at the Emmys last year that we were waiting to hear back from them. And I remember just being so stressed out. And they came back, not with any denials, but instead just said everything we did was legal. Either the court approved or Britney consented. And Jamie is proud of his work and Black Box is proud of their work, keeping Britney safe. It's almost a year later from the first doc. And Britney's lawyer is just now having a deadline to depose Jamie and get him to answer these allegations under oath. Nothing has really happened to our understanding. Law enforcement has not investigated these claims. And to me, that's really surprising because I think they are really serious allegations of invasion of privacy that if they can happen to Britney Spears, one of the most famous people on this planet, what does that mean for other clients of Black Box and other vulnerable people out there? Yeah, and I think something that really stood out to us looking at the screenshots of text messages. So Alex said that sometimes Edan, his boss at Black Box Security, would ask him to screenshot certain text messages because they were mirroring her iPhone using an iCloud account. And they were taking screenshots from certain people to send them to Jamie Spears and also, strangely, Robin Greenhill, who works for TriStar, Britney's business manager, which are the people in charge of the money who aren't usually given access to her private text messages that could include medical information, et cetera. And something that stood out to us was one of the things that Alex was screenshotting were communications with her lawyer, her court-appointed attorney, Sam Income. There's attorney-client privilege, and that was written in court documents when it first started that she was allowed to speak with him privately, her lawyer. And so the question is, why were those screenshots? There were screenshots of text messages with her mother, with her best friends from home. When, you know, the dates on those audio recordings are right before a court investigator comes to speak to Brittany in 2016, days before. And we have a lot of questions about 
why they were monitoring her in that way. There's another character here, an important character that's sort of off screen, and that's the courts. And I can just simply not understand what this judge or these judges were thinking. Here's a person who's clearly a highly, one of the most productive members of society under conservatorship and continued for 13, 14 years. You know, there's some discussion that the attorney that she couldn't hire says, maybe there's something in those documents we don't know about. We just don't know what we don't know. But what could the courts possibly be thinking? Do you have any insight into this judge or judges or and how do they justify this? I think it is really important to own, we don't know what we don't know. And many of these records are sealed. But given that, and even allowing for that, I think that Brittany's case raises serious questions about the legal system and the way that the probate court acted. For the second documentary, we obtained sealed transcripts from a closed door court hearing in 2014, where Brittany's court appointed lawyer, Sam Ingham, tells the judge, Brittany is unhappy with the conservatorship. She wants to retire. She wants to have kids. She wants to do this and that. And she feels the conservatorship doesn't let her do that. And the judge makes a wise crack. I don't think I remember that we took away her right to get married, but you may not want to tell her that. And I think that illuminates just the tone and the way that they viewed a conservatee who is, by definition, once you're deemed a conservatee, you're a vulnerable person who the entire probate structure is designed around serving your best interests and trying to help you and trying to help you regain your independence and get out of the conservatorship. And I think that response did not meet that criteria. The second thing that happened in that sealed transcript was Brittany's then lawyer also said that Brittany thinks Jamie, her father and conservator, has been drinking and she wants him randomly tested for alcohol. And we know that Jamie seriously struggled with alcohol throughout his life. He'd gone to rehab a few years before the conservatorship. And it also seems the judge does not take this complaint or potential problem seriously. I think she says something like, who is Brittany to be demanding that of anyone to take randomly scheduled alcohol tests? And that was another kind of shocking moment that when we took that to experts, they all said, whoa, that was really alarming. Another theme here is the stigma of mental illness. As I said, you give reasons to really reconsider what the level of mental illness might have been in the part of Brittany. We don't know that. We can't know that. But I do think it's something that can attach itself to people and makes it very hard for them to get out from under something like conservatorship. Hi, folks. This is Mike. At this point in the conversation, we delved into some material that was extremely personal and we think it's probably not fit for public consumption at this point. But regardless to say, the rest of the conversation uh, was informed by this disclosure. So now back to our conversation. I just want to say that I commend you for saying that out loud. I think it's so wonderful because a reason these kind of things happen is there's so much shame around mental health. And we're starting to talk about it more. I think this younger generation. I love when they do this because it's really important. And a lot of what happened with Brittany and how shamed she was, you know, she said 
in court when she spoke publicly that a reason she didn't say anything sooner was she didn't think people would believe her. She said, I thought they would think I was lying. She said something like it would be embarrassing for people to know what I was going through. I thought they would make fun of me is what she said, which is a really important part to me about the films. This idea that Britney was made fun of for her mental health. And I think so many of us were and are. And I think this story also puts it out there, too, that we need to talk about this. The more you talk about it, the less stigma there is, the more you're behind the bar, the more people can look at you. From my earlier story about why I do documentaries, when I was interviewing Vivian Thorine, who was a lawyer for Jamie Spears that we had in the first documentary at the very beginning, when she was first put in the conservatorship in 2008, I asked her, why do you think Brittany should have been in this? This was off camera, but she said everyone saw those photos of the shaved head. And I think that really made it okay to make fun of Brittany still until our documentary came out. It was okay to smirk. People would always smirk when we said we were making a documentary about Britney Spears. We don't know what's in the rest of the documents, but we know from the do sealed documents we got from 2014, 2016, 2019, and then when she spoke in 2021 that she was expressing that she wanted her father removed, she wanted to know how to get out of the conservatorship, she felt like she was being violated, and we didn't know because it, it was sealed, and I think part of that is the stigma. She's mentally ill. We can't trust anything she's saying. We do an all-or-nothing thing in society, especially with women. Maybe she's a drug addict. Maybe she's bipolar. Maybe she's this, that. And then you don't have to listen to anything she's saying for the rest of her life, it seems. Could someone expand on the last point about women being especially in danger of this? I think we saw it even in the media coverage. I remember it was during the pandemic and Liz and I and our associate producer, Melanie Ben-Cosme, got this edit of a bunch of hours of footage, archival footage of Britney being humiliated. And we were watching it on the same weekend. And I had a stationary bike in my apartment and I had to get on it and like be going on the bike while I was watching it because it was making me so angry that it was okay to treat her like this. And I think we also learned from talking to people that she was marketed as a peer to young women. And I'm a year younger than Britney Spears and watching how she was treated and realizing that it made it okay to treat me like that subconsciously or not, it must have affected my classmates. You know, it's okay to ask a young woman if she's a virgin and pressure her to say yes and tell her she's too sexy. There was this thing that happened where journalists, respected journalists would bring her in and say, people say you're a bad mother, that you're crazy, that you're too sexy. What do you have to say to that? And just this idea that it's like, let's make Britney cry and defend herself against all the horrible things people are saying about her. And she's a young woman, and that's totally fine. And meanwhile, Justin Timberlake, who we also featured in the first documentary, the way he was covered was that he was a heartbroken golden boy who, you know, Britney was a vixen who broke her heart. And I think that Jamie Spears struggled with alcoholism throughout his life. But he's given the second chance and it's okay for him to make almost like all of Britney's decisions. But Britney, a big reason people think she was in the conservatorship is she's struggling with substance abuse. We know 
that she, from what she said, that she was going to Alcoholics Anonymous and she doesn't get a second chance, it appears. And there's a big difference between the two of them. Brittany is a woman. Jamie Spears is a man. It really seems like it's much easier to treat women like that. It's really easy to think that women need to be taken care of in a different way than we think about men. Part of the reason why I originally pitched this was because I'm also around the same age as Brittany. I felt like I grew up with her. So I remember when she was America's Golden Girl, when she first premiered, I was jealous of her or maybe thought I was too cool. I wasn't a fan. And then years later, when she was going through her public struggles, I avidly consumed the tabloids that were, you know, totally attacking her for profit and with glee and reacting to her public struggles very cruelly. For me, not only gendered dynamics of it, but like my own complicity and society's complicity in all of this felt like a real public service. And I had a daughter, I had a baby two days before the first documentary premiered, and I was taking care of her all while we were making the whirlwind of the second doc and doing this reporting last year. And I just thought a lot about her and her future and what kind of world is she going to grow up in and what is she going to learn about the way that we treat each other and the way that we treat women. This is not quite as close to that, but for me, David Letterman was a giant comic influence on my life. And I'm not going to say his legacy is completely negative. That's not my point. However, his treatment of women like Britney Spears and Paris Hilton, it was wrong. And I can't believe I laughed at that. You've actually touched on something that I was just about to ask about, which is the conservatorship language for Britney cites mental health and possible substance abuse. There's not a huge amount about the substance abuse part in the film. There are a couple of key moments, though. But to me, it seems like a real slippery slope to say, Someone failed a drug test, so I guess they need to stay in this conservatorship. Many people struggle with drug abuse, alcohol abuse, and they're not in a conservatorship. There seems to be, to me, something very dangerous about having that language in her conservatorship. And it's one of the reasons she was essentially held hostage, because they could hold over her one failed drug test and you're going to stay in this thing. Yeah. So to be clear, I think what you're referring to is some of the sealed documents that we got from the 2014 closed door hearing. When Britney's then lawyer says, Britney wants to end the conservatorship, the judge responds and says, she knows that my criteria is that she needs to pass one year's worth of clean drug tests and establish a healthy relationship with a therapist. And then I will consider it, not guarantee it, but I will consider ending it. And we know that there were never any formal petition to terminate the conservatorship filed before 2021 when Britney's father did it very abruptly in an about face. So we don't know whether the judge would have required a mental evaluation or what the doctor's opinions were. Again, there's a lot we don't know. But to be clear, as you said as well, just having mental health issues and just having substance use issues are not necessarily grounds for conservatorship. Otherwise, there would be millions and millions of people in America under conservatorship. I think there's a big question we're grappling with also, which is it's quite common for rock stars and pop stars to die. We have Amy Winehouse, we have Prince, we have so many people, Michael Jackson, Kurt Cobain. There's a lot of people who overdosed her died by suicide. And a question is, 
do you have the right to do that? You know what I mean? If they're saying, which is possible if they could overdose or could die by suicide, does she have the right to do that? And it's a big question to think of when you think about what's happening there. I want to thank you folks. As I said, for me, this is a personal film. I really appreciate you show, you know, if you have someone in your life who has chronic mental illness, you should be kind and help them. But also, if you have temporary mental illness, you can get through it. And I think Brittany is a great example of someone who did get through it, who has had an incredibly successful career and a life, seemingly a happy family life, despite it all. So those are two, I think, messages, personal messages I drew from this work. There's a lot of other great stuff here, too. This isn't just about a celebrity. It is. But there's somebody who means a lot to a lot of people, as you show. But it goes way beyond that, too. Yeah, that's really well put. And as you said, the reality of mental illness and mental health can be very complicated. But I think that only raises the stakes on why the checks and balances in the system are so important and why they need to be examined and transparent. And that's what we felt we did with the second documentary in particular. Samantha, if you can tell us what's up next for you. I'm still making documentaries with the New York Times. So we are doing development right now, looking at what our next project should be. Hopefully I get to work with Liz because she's my favorite partner in crime for making documentaries. And Liz, what's up next for you? I hope to work with Samantha again soon. And I am currently working on a few things, including a new doc for the New York Times and reporting out a few potential stories. And I'm always open for tips, especially if anyone has any information pertaining to um, any wrongdoing or investigative reporting. My email, my phone number is online and I'm always love to hear from people. I think that's the first on-air solicitation we've had for ideas, <laughs> yes. but, mo but most welcome. Thank you both so much. Congratulations on the film. Both films, by the way, have been nominated for an Emmy. Best of luck to you this time. <laughs> and going forward, you've done path-breaking reporting here. You have also made a great film. So cinematically, you have certainly made your mark and the themes and the issues are certainly not done here. So thank you for opening this door and leading the way and for being with us today. Definitely going to keep up with your work. Thank you. You just thank have you. to convince those editors. Yeah, now they're, now they're on our side. Okay. Editors. I, bet. I bet they are. <laughs> thank you guys so much for this interview. The questions were so insightful and you guys are so smart. So thank you. Liz, do you have a recommendation for a documentary hidden gem? I feel like I'm super behind because I have an infant daughter, so I've not been keeping up with new documentaries or hidden gems, but I do really want to watch the rest of the 7-Up series, which listeners may be familiar with. It was this kind of groundbreaking documentary series that aired in Britain where a documentary filmmaker followed the same cohort of children from age seven and then every seven years until I think they turned 63. And it's just a really amazing experimental documentary that just reveals so much about human development and culture and nature versus nurture. And it's just an awesome watch. 
and Samantha. I think about this documentary a lot called Special Flight that I watched at a film festival in 2010. And it never was released that I could see in the US. I look it up periodically and I believe you can stream it now. It takes place in Switzerland and it's about a detention center for people who are about to be deported. They're trying in Switzerland to do it the most humane way possible. So it follows these people for nine months and the people who work there become very close with the uh, men who are waiting to be deported. And it just shows that no matter how humane you try to be, deporting people is not humane. It's very moving. So that's my hidden gem. It's